Want to get smarter about investing? Then tune in to the Capital Ideas podcast from Capital Group, home of American Funds Distributors, Inc., one of the world's leading asset managers. Learn from portfolio managers with decades of experience by listening to the Capital Ideas podcast today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is David Frangioni, CEO and publisher of Modern Drummer Magazine. So excited about our new podcast, The Modern Drummer Podcast. This weekly podcast will bring Modern Drummer to life. Sit back and enjoy fresh, fun, and insightful conversations with today's top drummers, producers, musicians, beat makers, and craftsmen. Whether you're a professional, a hobbyist, drummer, musician, programmer, producer, or just love music, This show is for you. Every other week, the Modern Drummer Podcast will feature world-renowned producer, songwriter, and drummer, Narda Michael Walden. Narda Michael Walden's Upbeat is featured exclusively on the Modern Drummer Podcast. Hello, everybody. I'm David Frangioni. I'm here with Billy Amendola. And on this week's podcast, we have the one and only Mickey Curry. Welcome, Mickey. Hey. Yeah. Hey, man. Hi. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> Thanks for so, having me, you guys. This is great. It's exciting. I, I, I know you guys have, have crossed paths before because David has uh, worked on some of Brian's albums. Right. So, yep. No, Mickey and I go way back. Um, I, the first time we met was... I want to say it was on the So Far So Good tour, I think. Right. And, uh, you know, I was traveling with Brian on a bunch of dates. And yep. um, and then from there, it's, you know, I mean, that was the 90s, yeah. right? So that's yeah. like 25 years ago at least. 112 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and man, I, and I have to say, now, of course, I had uh, heard you play quite a bit prior to meeting you in person. But because I was with Brian and um, and – and hanging a lot, I would stand in the front row yeah. for, at, a, at a bunch of shows, a lot of shows, actually. And so watching you that closely and hearing the combination of stage sound and, and front of house and watching the, the communication of the band on stage, uh, it was awesome. I mean, to me, it was really, Mickey, the, the definition of when you think of an awesome rock pop drummer that glues the band together always playing something interesting but the music is still like forging forward has just this great driving you know groove all the time i learned so much you know i it's funny because i had i I, i've had the experience of sitting on the side of the stage many times with mickey and back in the day we even played together i don't know if you remembered we went to that yamaha thing one one time we actually played played drum i think you were one of the first like really like pro guys that I played along with next to. And I was like so nervous that day. And yeah, I was like, so funny pro, yeah. but you mean pro meaning somebody pays you to play drums. Is that, is that the difference? Between- <laughs> yeah. No, somebody that I like really, really looked up to. Yeah. But, um, crazy. 
but and that oh my god that was yeah that was in the 80s sometimes but i was gonna say um sitting on the side of the stage last year i didn't i didn't are you sitting lower now than you even used to because i couldn't believe how low it might be a bit lower than it used to be Uh, i've always i've always sat low since you know like uh club band days in the seventies here in Connecticut. I was in a car accident when I was 21 and I hurt my back, my lower back. And, uh, you know, I was sort of, uh, took care of it for a couple of months. And then when I got back on the drum kit, I couldn't sit the way I normally sat. You know, I, I sort of sat about as high as everybody else. I don't know how high it was, but, um, I tried sitting up higher, you know, like the Ringo thing and that hurt even more. So the lower I went, and the, the further back from the kit I got, I could sort of arch my lower back, you know, and um, that seemed to work. So I just worked out how to set up, you know, keep everything in front of me. Um, and, uh, you know, it worked out that way. So I've always I've always sat really low. And uh, yeah, I think. Um, and you have such a relaxed, I mean, I was watching you from the side, you have such a, you're rocking. And, you know, and, and Brian has so many soft love ballads, you know. Yeah. But live, the band, I mean, the band rocks. And you just comfortably, right, like like David said, yeah. locking it, putting the, you know, the glue, like locking it right in. And yeah. so comfortable. But I, I noticed that you were sitting a little bit lower. I than, do sit, I, I sit about as low as, uh, as a matter of fact, Yamaha's the only a stool I can use the old Yamaha thrones because they go really low. Uh, yeah. A lot of, stools on, don't. you know, I've got a couple of, um, you know, after, uh, guys, there's some of the newer ones. I can't use them. I have to use the old thrones, you know, no, no open back. No, they're just the big padded, you know, seat round padded seats. And, uh, you know, we get them recovered every once in a while and, just I, I've been using the same ones for years. So and you went back to arenas. Brian, as you know, did a bunch of uh, yeah. acoustic dates for a That's while. Right. But then yeah. the band's back the last few years pre-COVID, yeah. and yeah. you guys are doing big places again and the whole yeah. band. Yeah, we were um, we were in Scandinavia uh, beginning of March, uh, end of February into March. We had about a three week run. We were going to go through you know Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Finland. Uh, we got three or four, maybe five shows in, and uh, this thing hit pretty hard. So everybody, uh, we got on a plane and came home. So I was home that first week of March, tenth, uh, I think it was. And you know they shut down all the airports a few days later, and nobody was going anywhere. So I'm glad I got home, or I'd I'd still be in Oslo right now. You know, I mean, I, there was there's no way out of the thing. So um, everything's on hold, and we'll see what happens next year. You know. Well, but let, yeah, let, we, we've been doing I, big, lots of big shows. So. I want I want to go back for, for in case people have been living under a rock, and and um, I know you're you're kind of a private person, so you don't do tons and tons of interviews. So mm-hmm. thank you for doing this today with us. No, thanks but for having me. This is great. I want to go back, and I don't think that there's anybody else. I can't think of anyone else in the business who has toured and recorded for two major superstar groups, mm. Hall and & Oates and Brian Adams, which Brian Adams even still to, to this day. I don't, I, don't, I don't recall, I don't think there's anybody else. Well, I'm really lucky, you know. I mean, the Hall & Oates thing was, uh, was such a great time. And, um, 
you know, if we weren't on the road, we were in the studio. So uh, I, I got to do three or four albums with them, uh, six or seven years. And then I was working with Brian through that whole period. I was with Daryl and John. Uh, I, we'd have a couple of weeks off. I'd go in the studio with Brian and we got a lot of recording done, you know, from his early records. So I've been working with him for a long time. Just I couldn't go on the road because I was touring with Daryl and John and I couldn't split up the stuff. So um, 87, uh, Daryl went solo, did a solo record and was going to do some solo stuff. So, you know, I needed to work. And I had gone up to Vancouver. I was working on the Into the Fire record and uh, they asked me to come on the road. So, you know, the rest. And those those Hall and Oates, the Hall and Oates days, that that was like MTV's peak. So. You were on those records and on MTV. like Yeah, we were on MTV all the time. I know the videos, the videos used to drive us crazy because they would book like um, two weeks, maybe three weeks. And we would have to go into this uh, kind of movie studio uh, and shoot all these videos for all the singles, you know. Um, And back then, you know, videos took, one video could take, uh, you know, five or six days to shoot all the, get all the shots. It was horrible. So, um, you know, we spent a lot of time working on videos and that they were a big, they were a big part of, uh, Daryl and John's success. You know, they, they made great videos and, um, they, and you, and you know, and they, they, they've always had studio musicians up until that point, And then you were on yes. all those records and yeah. then same thing with Brian, Brian is a singer songwriter. He could have had, you know, studio musicians and, yeah. And you played on all of that stuff. So you well, we, basically you know, had so many songs on the radio at yeah, one time that yeah. you were a studio musician, even though you were a live yeah. guy. Another person that I don't, I can't think of anybody. Who's yeah, done that. It, it's funny because, you know, from the time I was a kid, you know, I was a little kid. I wanted to do session work because I wanted to play everything. I wanted to play all different kinds of stuff. I didn't, I, you know, I couldn't just sort of, you know, play the rock thing. I didn't want to just play R&B. I didn't want to play. I wanted to play everything. So, you know, I would listen to all these great studio musicians, you know, find records with Bernard Purdy and Jeff Beccaro and Jim Keltner and, you know, Steve Gadd and you name all of the great, your favorite guys. So um, uh, I thought that what a great way to make a living. You know, you go into a recording studio, you get to play drums on all these different types of songs, different musicians. And what a great way to make a living. It'd be great. So uh, I was lucky, you know, I got to do that. And um, at the same time, you know, your bread and butter is going out and playing live. So uh, you got to do that as well. So I'm really, I've been really lucky, you know, uh, just lucky between. Well, when, when you eight- started with Brian in 87, as, as Hall and Oates was, uh, was, you know, the, the solo album was happening, other stuff. Yeah. From then on, you have, you've toured all of it from then on with Brian. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. And uh, except for the bare bones stuff that, that you mentioned, but yes, We've been touring because there wasn't a drummer. No. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've been touring forever. And luckily, you know, when we weren't on the road, I would get to, you know, I was in LA a lot. I'd worked on a lot of records all through the eighties and nineties. And uh, (laughs) I I have to tell you, Mickey, and and this is, this is very old news to you, but um, I remember talking to Brian because Brian never really looked at me from a drum standpoint yeah, all the yeah. technology and yeah, we, didn't really, we weren't really talking about drums that right. much, but, but when I had an opportunity to talk drums with him and he kind of looked at me for, through a different view for a minute, yeah. he would just always talk about just that undeniable unique groove that you brought that he just saw mm-hmm. as like, 
just to your credit, just this this one one of a kind, you know, approach to how you played and drove the band. And it got me thinking, because I respect Brian so much, it got got me thinking like from another view as well. Like, okay, let me really understand let me go deep on like what, cause I've been a musician my whole life. So it's like, sure. let me really understand what is Brian referring to? And I would really analyze listening to you play. And it's just what, what is your approach that you're able to have this combination that so few drummers are ever able to accomplish where you can drive the band, but it's not in any way just like so simple that it lacks imagination and nuance it has all that stuff but yet what you feel in the audience is just energy yeah and it's not all these you know fills and drumistic stuff yet you try to play what you play and you realize i don't know how he does it what what you know that answer. i'll let mickey tell it but i know <laughs> <laughs> well you know for, I, I am really uh, technically i'm i'm really kind of limited okay i i don't have i i, I cannot even uh, imagine how Dave Weckl does what he does, okay? But, um, or, or all those great guys, you know, Steve Gadd's that guy, you know, he, he, can, he takes what he knows and he, he just blends it into a song or a track and it, it's, it's magical. But, you know, for me, it, it's got to feel right. It just sit down and play. Keep it simple. Keep the time. You know, make sure your backbeat is where it needs to be. It's just got to feel like something. It has to groove. It has to feel right. It can't just be a part. And if you're feeling it, the bass player is going to be feeling it and the guitar player is going to be feeling it and the keyboard player is going to be feeling it. And especially the guy singing the song is going to feel it. So, you know, it's all about um, feel what it feels like, you know, and if I'm feeling it, it's going to be, it's definitely going to make everybody else feel the same thing. And to get and I, and to I, that I, point where I, you can play what you feel. Yeah. What, what was the, was it just, I probably just play. I think it's just you have to play a lot. You have to, you know, focus on that and concentrate on it. And also, you know, I, I've always just so, stolen little bits and pieces from all my favorite guys. You know, Bernard Purdy is the master uh, of that. You know, um, um, you know, Jeff Porcaro. Listen, listen, just anything he ever played. There's, there's not a bad note in any of those tracks. So these are the guys you listen to these guys and you sort of try to pull technically you pull what, they're, what they're playing and, and sort of try to try to uh, bring it into your, your little bag of tricks, you know, your little thing. So um, it, it, for me, it's always been that you just take the notes that you're comfortable playing, you know, that you're comfortable with and don't try to overplay or, or, you know, you don't have to play everything you know in every song. You know? Well, the, 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 fact, the fact that you brought up some of those guys and said that you were into studio musicians, I think that's the key right there because yeah. you grew up listening to songs. Yeah, songs. It's so, all about songs. And, and you know, and I've always... Huge yeah. fans of Ringo, even though we, everybody talks about Ringo all the yeah. time. But I, I know that you're, you're like guy. me. Yeah, you're like mm. me and so many other people. Such a huge fan of Ringo. So you don't need all those chops because no. you may not have got the work that you got yeah. if you had all those chops because yeah. you might have got fired from somebody saying, hey, yeah. please. You know, I, you know, the late Tony Thompson, he used to say mm. to me all the time when he first Beautiful. got into, into Chic, you know, now Rogers, they, they, 
he came in, he was into Billy Cobham, he was studying with Nada yeah. Michael Wilson, and yeah. then he came in to play Chic Stuff, which was going to be a, a disco band. Right. And Nile looked at, at Bernard at one time and said, I don't, because Bernard brought him in, he said, I, I, what is it with this guy? Why does he need all these cymbals and all the drums? And one by one, they yeah. started taking his Taking things away. <laughs> Left him with a kick and a snare and a hi-hat. But nobody could play a kick and a snare and a hi-hat like Tony. Well, he, he, he learned, but you see, you yeah. grew up, yeah. you grew up learning about yeah. playing to, to, to song. Yeah. I mean, listen to any Motown track, right? All those guys, Benny Benjamin and Pistol Allen and, uh, and Uriel Jones. And, you know, even the earlier things that like Marvin Gaye played on a bunch of early Motown records. And his drumming is just phenomenal. But it's all about groove and feel, you know, just getting a good, get that backbeat where it's supposed to be, you know, and, um, and uh, just make it feel good. And you practice with the click a lot? Uh, no, but, um, you know, just from uh, being in the studio so much, especially when I was younger, you just get, you, you have to learn to play with a click. I mean, you have to, you know, and it was always for me, you know, my biggest fear was always, you know, don't lose the click. So that was a big joke too. And especially on all those early Adams records, you know, it cuts the, uh, all those, um, uh, I remember a song called fits you good on the, you want it, you got it record. And <laughs> I remember tracking that song and I'm, I'm just beating my brains out. You know, I'm pounding, I'm playing as hard and as much, it just big, big drums. And I kept just, I, I was focusing, just don't lose the click. You're going to sound like an idiot. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it was, well, and also the Hall and Oaks, that Jimmy yeah. Braylauer programming, yeah. um, a lot of the, and, and then Arthur Baker doing the remixes. So yeah, a lot of that, that was the sound that just started to come in. So you kind of had to play. Yeah. That was, you know, that was yeah. your well, well, sound, those, like, sound like a machine. Yeah. A lot of those records, I, I didn't know whether to, um, Sort of run away or or get involved. So Jimmy Jimmy was is he's a great guy, Jimmy Braylauer, and uh, we worked a lot on just getting those little drum grooves the way Daryl needed them for those songs. Uh, but I I I really dug doing that, you know, working in the electronics with live drums, you know, and Clearmount Bob Clearmountain was really crucial in getting that to happen. So uh, mm -hmm. uh, we spent we spent some time just putting live drums over those great little parts and, or we'd loop, you know, we'd do a drum thing. I'd play, you know, eight bars of something and they would, they could just loop it. Right. And stuff on top of, you know, and clean it up. And, but Clear Mountain was crucial to that, uh, the, the success of those tracks, you know. Well, Clear Mountain produced the Brian Adams record. Yeah. And then you also worked with him on other records. Yeah. I had the first thing I did with Bob Clear Mountain was, uh, I did GE Smith's record. Um, uh, at Power Station, it was it was it was amazing. It was the first place I worked in New York City was Power Station. Uh, wow! And then you know, and then we were at Electric Lady a month later, working with Daryl and John, and and then back a couple of weeks later with Brian at Power Station. So I was in two great studios in my first couple of New York studio experiences. And what was it like working with Bob? I mean, he's Bob's, such a legendary figure, but that was yeah, really I, what was heyday in producing and yeah, working so close with the tracks. I've always said, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't have had half the career I have had if it wasn't for Bob Claremont. He could make the drums sound uh, so big and good and great. He just, he took, he, he loved how I played and he could mix how I Play. you know it, it was his sort of idea of a good drum track was 
me playing and him mixing it. So the combination of, you know, the two of them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those big, uh, all the big Tom fills and all those big floor Tommy things. And, uh, you know, he was really, and that snare drum sound, you know, that, that Clear Mountain snare drum. Man, it, it's just. And were you using the same snare? We used a couple of different. On all the records? And then he a couple of different it? snare drums. Different um, ones. Uh, Black Beauty on a lot of that stuff. Um, and I had, uh, I've always been a fan of the um, Yamaha, the seven inch birch shell snare drums. Uh, those, I have two or three of those that were on a lot of those records as well. And Bob liked that sound too. Bob used to tune the snare drum. I'd, I'd come into the, I'd walk into a session, you know, a half an hour early just to get the drums together. And he'd be sitting at the drum kit tuning the snare drum. You know? he, knew, <laughs> he knew, it was funny. He, there was a certain rattle and a certain sort of overtone that he needed to have in order to set the gates properly on the you know, SSL. And uh, it, he really had his thing for how to get that snare drum sound. So that was, wow. always, uh, that was always fun. But Bob's yeah, great. He, and uh, he's, he's really, he's one of the, he's one of the best. And great, no doubt great about years. That. He, he knows how to mix a song. And, and he, you, you've been with cool. Yamaha now. How many years you've been with Yamaha? Uh, since 1981. So. Wow. Yeah. I don't know what that and, is. Uh, I'm 112. I, I don't know. I, I, I know. Really I, I sometimes I feel like I'm 120. Yeah, but you only and look. Some, and then sometimes I feel like I'm 12. So you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you're probably like me. You know, most guys. Uh, you know, you get to this age and you um, you still think you're 35 years old in your head. <laughs> you just you go for it like you're a kid. So, and like I I'm, know, I'm talking I, about 35 like they're kids. But mute, mute, mute. well, yeah, well, they are really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Music, music keeps you young. It does. I think so. I think it yeah. does. Yeah. Uh, talking about producers, um, I heard a track the other day because I was I was just listening to some. I told Alexa to uh, to shuffle some Brian Adams, and I, I forgot the name of the song, but it was a tune I wasn't that familiar with, and it sounded. I told my wife it was Def Leppard, oh. and I, and then when I looked at the credits, I saw it was co-written by Mutt Lang and, and Brian and of course produced. Now, yeah. what did you learn from, from working with, with Mutt? I love Mutt. Mutt's great. Um, you know, I heard horror stories about working with Mutt uh, a drummer, as drummers go, uh, apparently, because he's really, you know, he hones in on what he needs to hear and he, he knows exactly what he's got to have. He knows it when he hears it, you know? So... Uh, and he programs a lot of what he... he programs, wants. a lot of that stuff's all, you know, programmed. So... Um, I, I was a little leery about uh, working with him because I had heard it takes, somebody told me it took him a week to get a hi-hat track, you know? So I thought, oh, this is not, this is not going to go well because I, you know, I mean, I just sort of sit down and play and hopefully it, it works. You know, I'm not really a piece it together kind of guy. So, <laughs> but I got in the studio with Mutt and um, he loved everything. He just loved everything. He, he kept first or second take of most things I recorded with him. Um, the song, Have You Ever Really Loved a Woman, uh, was recorded in Jamaica, at a house in Jamaica. I was there. You were there? Yeah. At the, you, in Ocho Rios. That's right. Yeah. With the that's, ring that we did with Ron Obvious. Of course. You were yeah. there. Well, do you remember we had the drums upstairs and, um, Paco De Lucia had just done, spent three days putting guitars on the song. And they tracked him down because he was on vacation yeah. there and they were looking for him and he was like next door. So, he was, he was in hell because it, you know, he thought he would be done in an hour or two, put a couple of guitar tracks on. He ended up putting about 30 guitar tracks on the thing and it took him three days, but it worked out for me because I got to sit out 
sit outside in the in the at the pool and listen oh, yeah. to the song in the ocean a thousand times yeah. you know to get it in my head to to know what i was doing so anyway um you know i got upstairs uh the the control room was downstairs we had cameras so we could see each other yep and uh okay roll the tape so we they roll and i record and i finish and it's quiet for like what seemed like you know 10 minutes it was really probably 10 seconds but nobody said anything and mutt came on the talk back and said uh he goes yeah mickey man i think you got it so i thought okay this is a joke okay <laughs> all right i'll do it again he goes, no man i think you got it so what so i went downstairs and we listened and it was done except for uh he needed a fill somewhere put a fill right here so, so I went back upstairs and I did a little, um, you know, Benny Benjamin Phil, which as is my custom and, um, it worked. So I was thrilled to death to be able to get a track in one take with Mutt Lang and, you know, <laughs> have it work. And the song was great. Hit. it worked out really well. So, uh, I was happy for that, but I love you working know, with Mutt. He's, he's great, you know? Yeah. He's a really good guy. And he's, he funny. created a, he created a he's, sound. He's that... amazing. He's amazing. He, um, we we did a session in Paris where we did two songs in start to finish, uh, recorded, mixed, and done in one day. And uh, that was the whole gist of the session. And um, it worked out great with my, we had 12 guys in the room, you know, three guitars, two keyboard players. Uh, just, it was really a busy session and um, it worked out great. So much no. a great guy to, to work with. Talk, talking about you just gave me a flashback the three of us are pretty much around the same age david's younger than us but um he, he he remembers these days when you used to be in the studio and you were in this either own yeah. room by yourself and everybody else was on the other side behind the glass you didn't know if they were liking what you were doing no. the main thing was to never look in there because half of the time if they weren't paying attention you're like Oh, they're not digging what I'm doing. <laughs> and then, or they turn around after you finish and they go, got it. And you'd be yeah. like, really? I didn't even think anybody was paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was so. a big, that was a big joke with Bob Clearmountain because if I looked in the control room and he was standing, if he was on his feet looking over the board at me, I knew, I knew it was a good take. If he was still sitting and just sort of, you know, playing with a, playing with the, the board, um, you know, we probably had some work to do. But he always sort of clued me in. He would stand up and really get excited, you know, when, when he was listening to something. So he, he knew what he was listening to. But yeah, yeah that, I hated that. I hated being behind all the big baffles. I know, I know. And, uh, you know, you're, you're really isolated. And um, that, that was never any fun. But we did get to a point uh, somewhere in the 90s where... Uh, open drums. Open drums, man. Just, you know, big, big mics all over the room and... So let's touch a little bit because there was a couple of records. I know you did the cult record. You did yeah. a cult album, right? Sonic two, two albums, yeah. From in ninety two to ninety three, right? Yeah, something them? like that. Yeah, I did uh, uh, Sonic Temple. Sonic Temple. That's and the one. Ceremony, I the follow up record. Yes. Yeah. How did that come about? Um, I I had done some work with Bob Rock you know, in Vancouver. Uh, Another great one. Yeah, great. Great producer and a great guy and a really talented musician as well and um, really fun to work with. Bob Rock's one of those guys you just, whatever you play, he loves. You know, he just... And he always got... Play great always, and I'll love it. So, and you know, he, he always got good... He, he's another one that always 
got great drum sounds. Great drum sounds. Great drum sounds. He really hones in on that, and um, and he's a master. You know, he's another guy. He's just got great ears. You know, uh, yeah. The cult record. Uh, Bob asked me if I would be interested in um, coming up to Vancouver and working on a cult record, and I thought, great, I would love to. You know, I had been a fan of theirs, and um, uh, well, I thought this will be fun. So I went up. We rehearsed for a few days, and then we. Did all the tracks we were done i think in about a week on the sonic temple record and you know firewoman turned out to be a big hit for them so and and did you tour with them as well no i never toured with them um they they were hoping i could go do some shows with them but i i couldn't uh when we when we did the follow-up record um i went i actually went with them uh to a couple of auditions they were looking for a drummer so we would record uh during the day and then at night, they were going to a rehearsal place and listening to drummers. And uh, the, the, the first night I went, um, Matt Sorum was, was uh, auditioning. And he played about, I don't know, he played about 30 seconds. And I just looked at them both and said, you guys are nuts if you don't hire this guy. He's <laughs> the best drummer I've ever heard. He was unbelievable. And he's such a sweet guy. He's a really good guy. And uh, they hired him on the spot. So I'm glad for that. Because Matt's a great drummer, and uh, he worked out really good for those guys. You know? Yeah, that was, that was on, cool. He went on to do the Guns N' Roses things. So. Yeah, no, Matt, Matt's, Matt's cool. Yeah, but no, I, that whole connection with the cult was Bob Rock. And, so, uh, so what's the matter? You couldn't do three tours and three albums? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know. I, you know, I think back, I, I, don't know how, I don't know how it all worked out, but it just worked out. You know, I would, if I wasn't on the road, I was lucky enough to be in a studio for a few days here and there, you know, I could fly. To yeah, LA because I could work in New York. Yeah, and then there was a. Uh, I saw Carly Simon. You, you did two yeah. Carly Simon records. I only did one record. I did um, "Let the River Run," uh, the uh, the uh, the song from Working Girl. Wow. Yeah, I got to play on that, and uh, and then they asked me to do the video, so I had to go into Manhattan at four thirty in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the middle of February and they were shooting on the Staten Island ferry. <laughs> and at, at seven o six thirty or seven o'clock in the morning when the ferries are running, we, we set up, they, of course they set up the drum kit on the very back part of the deck of the ship. Oh my God. Of the boat, you know, the, the thing, um, the ferry and the wind, it was, it had to be 10 below zero. And I'm trying to lip sync this really goofy sort of Tom Tom, uh, part on that song and uh anyway we spent the day on the staten island ferry shooting the video but that's yeah, great I, and and i worked brian wrote a song for carly um and we recorded that as well i don't know when that was so it was around uh, right around the same time so. wow yeah, yeah because there was a couple of people like Cher. i didn't know you played with Cher. yeah we did two songs uh bruce fairburn who was a great producer in vancouver um had asked Keith Scott and I if we'd be interested in doing a couple of tracks. So uh, we did a couple of songs for a share record. Yeah, that was fun. But yeah, wow. a, lot of those, a lot of those things, those names, you know, I only did a couple of songs. Celine Dion, I only did a couple of songs for. And I wanted to talk to Kenny about that because he was working on that record with, um, uh, who was producing that record? Anyway, um, and he, he had to go. Uh, it was running into some other session he had. So they called me and asked me if I'd come into New York and work on a couple of tracks. So I did. Jeff Ste um, Steinman, Bill, uh, Jim Steinman. Jim Steinman was producing. 
And uh, I wanted to talk to Kenny about that because I remember talking to him on the phone. And this is, uh, which are we talking about, Cher? And uh, uh, Celine Dion record. Celine Dion. Yeah, yeah. Wow, Jim did Celine Dion. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah he, I, he I think a, you know, a, a lot of those records where um, different producers would, would put together songs and, you know, if they got... Uh, if they were liked, then uh, they got put on the record. Yeah. It's all coming back to me now, wasn't That's that? It, the, yeah. I think that was, the, yeah. that was the record, yeah. But, um, yeah, I did uh, the Ike and Tina song, uh, River Deep, Mountain High. We did a version of that. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, Chasm Sultan was in on that session. That was really good. So, so when things get back to normal a little bit, Mickey, what's yeah. next? Back out with Brian? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Um, I, you know, we'll ha- I, just we're going to see what happens when the new year comes around, and you know, just how long it's going to take for all of this to go away or to get back to something. But yeah, I'm, I'm you know, looking forward to working. Just uh, I don't know what that means or what it will entail, but I'm sure Brian's got uh, things going on. He's probably um, ready to go. So uh, we'll see. Just take it day by day and hope, you know, hope we can all get back. I know. We have I mean, I'm, I'm dying to get back in the studio. I, I've done a, a few things um, earlier this year out here in Connecticut. There's a little studio I go in and put drums on stuff for guys. And uh, that's been really fun. You know, it brings me back to that. Oh, that's awesome. What studio and, are you working out of? Uh, it's a place called Horizon Music. It's in West Haven out here in Connecticut. And, um, Vic Steffens, who is a good friend and a, a great drummer as well, he runs the place and he's got drum kits and everything all set up. And I just, I drive over, it's a 20 minute drive. And I just walk in and we just spend all day playing drums and it's so much fun. But oh, that's awesome. You just wow, can't really cool. do it now. You know, you can't, it's, it's like, well, who was touching the doorknobs and who was, in I know it's, and, yeah, it's scary. So hopefully, nope. you know, I, I, it, to be honest, you guys, I love being home. You know, I'm home. It's not that I'm, I, you know, guys go, well, I'm stuck home. I can't do it. I love being home. It's, do you have a kit there and a, and a yeah, studio I have setup? My, I have an old Gretsch kit. It's the first kit I ever had. My father bought me when I was uh, 11. And uh, I've got it down in my basement. So um, it's between the furnace and the pile of paint cans and the, uh, and the oil <laughs> tank. It's over there in the corner, and it's piled up with all kinds of junk. But every once in a while, you know, if I get the urge, I can go down and – Put on some Marvin Gaye and blast along. Love it. Well, kind of like, kind of like being reborn, reborn again, going back to your childhood. Right? Yeah. Going well, you know what? Back. I think that uh, don't we all do that? Or you have to do that, right? You've you got have to do it once in a while. Rebirth all the time, right? Yep. You sort of refresh. Yeah. You hit you hit the refresh button. And you just go back. You have things to will do get it. Th- things will get better. They will. Yeah, I hope so. I, I'm pretty um, sure. Two 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 last things before we go. Live Aid. How, how was yeah. it playing at Live Aid? Live Aid was uh, great. We were kind of the house band there. Yeah. Right? Because we did, uh, we did a, some Hall Notes stuff. Then Eddie and David, Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin came out. And we did some Temptations medley things. And then um, Mick Jagger came out. We did a, one of his things. And then Tina came out and we did, <laughs> we did a thing <laughs> with Mick and Tina. Uh, it was exciting. You know, we had, we had rehearsed. Uh, the day before for uh, up at SIR in New York. And um, Mick was unbelievable, man. He such a professional, you know, he knew he he's amazing. He knew every part that everyone was doing. Right. He was so aware of, 
he makes it look like he's just winging it. Like it's just, he's just making it up as he goes, but he is so aware of every single little nuance of of the music and the choreography and what's going on on stage. And uh, how did it come up that you were the house band for all these different artists? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I think, um, I think they must've, you know, had meetings between the, the, the the big wigs, you know, Daryl and John must've talked to, Mick and Mick must have talked to Tina and uh, you know Eddie and David. We had done the thing at the Apollo, right? Theater, yeah, and it that was, was really fun. So that was thought, let's bring that. We'll bring that to live. You know, so oh okay. And then the other, and then it just started yeah. to grow from there. Yeah, it just grew from there, right? Like okay, so this will be a great hour on stage. Right? You know, you have all these. <laughs> You know, Mick it's and amazing. Unbelievable. It was so exciting. You know? And you, and you, but being and you back there, I was and, just slam, you, I'm slamming my brains out back there, you know, just trying to, uh, you know, you're so, you're so <laughs> jacked up about doing the show. And, uh, you know, T-Bone, God bless him. I, I miss him a lot. Anyway, uh, he was, you know, he's sort of musical director on the whole thing. So he was sort of conducting and, you know, we had the horns and we had, it was really fun. It was really that fun. That was Bash. good. Bashiri Johnson was up there. Oh, no, Bashiri, Bashiri was playing percussion. Ah, oh, I love Bashiri. Oh, wow. I love Bash, man. He's yeah, me Bash. too. Bash. I think awesome. I think any so, any studio thing that I did drums on uh, Bashiri's was yeah. on percussion. There were two guys for me the whole time, uh, like all those New York uh, things. It was Bash and um, Jimmy Malin. Jimmy Malin yeah. was just absolutely a gem. Uh, he played. He, we did a live at Liberty Park uh, show. Hall and Oates did. It was a big live thing, and they did some HBO thing with it later. Um, but uh, it was the last time I got to work with Jimmy and he was fantastic. man. Now, that Avalon record is some of the best percussion and drumming stuff ever. And yeah. Ralph McDonald at one time. Ralph McDonald, another great. Yeah. And but, when um, I used to love when you used to do uh, the Groove Night, the Yambo. Oh, yeah. Used to hang in at Nam and go to parties and <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. that's what that's when we were talking about going back out on the road and everything, and and we can't be near each other. Live Aid popped, in, that's why Live oh, yeah. Aid popped into my head. Yeah, imagine. can you imagine? Right, a hundred thousand people in the, the largest crowds ever, yeah. and it's televised to yeah. millions and yeah. millions yeah. of people. Yeah, something like three and a half billion people saw that. Yeah, and uh, you know, you between the London show, you know, at Wembley. Right. That giant, you know, 85,000 or 90,000 people in that stadium. And then where we were at RFK there, um, it was nuts, man. That was yeah, nuts. I could imagine. And uh, yeah, there were so many great people. That, Brian was there. I saw him, uh, we, I saw him in, the, um, in the food tent that day. <laughs> you didn't play with him at Live Aid? I didn't get to play with Brian at Live Aid. It was um, Pat Stewart was playing. Great, the great Pat Stewart. So okay, right, because that because that would have been eighty seven on is when the run has yeah, started and, yeah. and is ending. But at that period, you were still yeah, was, I was still doing all those live stuff. Yeah, and we were we were sort of winding down then. But um, yeah, that was a busy summer. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. Well, one I last thing before before we go, yeah, um, let's talk a little bit about why you started playing drums when you saw the. The Beatles, like oh, yeah. all of us, and a little bit about Ringo. Well, Ringo's the guy. You know, I was living at my grandmother's house. I was seven years old. Uh, and my brothers and I, you know, I have four older brothers and uh, two younger brothers. Anyway, we're, we're all um, all excited. The Beatles are going to be on the Ed Sullivan show. And, you know, you've been hearing them on the radio, and you, you were, like couldn't wait to see this. And my grandmother wouldn't let us watch. 
she's there's no way you guys are looking at these you know mop top you know long haired whatever hippie whatever. they're gonna ruin it. they're gonna ruin america yeah they're gonna they're just gonna destroy you so uh this is this is really the truth there, there our bedroom door uh the room we were sleeping we all had bunk beds in this one room and um it was onto the living room and I could just, if you crack the door just right, you could just see the TV. So, <laughs> so we were like, you know, like that cartoon where the mice all stand on top of each other and they're looking out the keel. We watched and I just, I was in awe of Ringo. I just couldn't, it, something hit me, man. I was, you know, it just, it hit me. I, I, that, that is something I could be able to do. So from that age on, I was really smitten, you know, and the Beatles were, did it. And Ringo is the guy. Ringo's the guy. He's always. I know. Well, you, it's, it's, you weren't playing drums at that point, right? No, I wasn't. I was seven, and I, 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 I didn't really uh, start. I didn't pick up a pair of sticks and actually bang on a drum till I was ten years old. So, uh, but there was something about that, you know. That, that and that's when your dad it. got you the Gretsch kit. Yeah, yeah. I was eleven when he gave me that. Amazing. Yeah. And you still that's have it. I do. Yeah, I have it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful kit. It's a mid fifties. Um, I think it's like 53. Uh, the old badge round. Yeah. yeah. The old round badge. And it's those beautiful maple shells. And, uh, it was, it was that white satin swirl, you know, that was, it's called satin swirl. It looked like have you, ever, have you ever recorded? Uh, I don't want to. Yeah. That kid I've recorded with way back. Way right. Back. Right. Yeah, when I was uh, when I was fifteen, I got my first sort of recording gig at a studio in Connecticut. They, I, I went to and did a bank commercial for like twenty five bucks. And my mother, my we threw the drums in my mother's car, and she drove me up to the studio. And uh, you know, we said, but that was the kid I used on that. And um, yeah, I had done a few recordings with that with various bands. And, you know. and I, I always used to go to sessions, and you know, I won't say who or what, but. Whoever you were endorsing, it just yeah. when it came to recording, people, everybody used Gretsch. I, yeah. I kept saying, I didn't know, you know, at the time I was just getting, you know, I was looking around and I was like, wow, it's, it's either a Ludwig kit or a Gretsch kit. Yeah. I thought you play X yeah. kit. I thought you were uh, a yeah. Rogers guy. Yeah. Don't tell anybody. Yeah. I know. I've heard that about a lot of great drummers. Like, um, well, I won't mention any names, but it was always, you know, when the tape's rolling. The Gretsch gets the one on the floor. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's something you know, you know, something to be but, said for that. Yeah, but they were always the kid, Gretchen and Ludwig, and maybe Slingerland to a certain extent. A lot of guys played Slingerland. So Danny mm-hmm. Seraph played Slingerland. Right, I know he was an, he was another big influence on you. Oh, huge, huge. Danny Seraphine. Yeah, yeah. He, was, he still is. Uh, you know, um, he, he's one of my heroes. He taught me how to play. You know, I was a kid and listening to those first three or four Chicago records. The drumming on those records is just uh, phenomenal. Yeah. He was well, a kid. I, Apparently he was 19 years old on that first record. I know. When Buddy Rich said, uh, when they asked him who, in Modern Drumming, they asked him who he liked. And he said, uh, I like Steve Gadden. I like that kid in, that's in that band, Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> and Buddy Rich does not like anybody. He didn't like yeah, anybody, yeah. did he? Yeah. Well, they weren't really a rock band. He wasn't no. It's funny, you know, you see some of the footage of Buddy now. You see these secret shows and these, you know, private film footage. Some of these home movie things. Just unbelievable, man. One of a kind. One of a kind. He's got a great... Did you ever read his book? It's called Traps. Mel Torme. Mel Torme, yeah. 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 Who was also a great musician. 
And Mickey, on your Yamaha kit, yeah. what, what's the what's your Yamaha kit of choice? What's your go-to? Which which series and and what? Can um, I like the uh, vintage Maple Customs is my sort of choice. I've been using the new hybrid Maples, and I really like them. But just for um, you know, sort of uh, what sort of you know hits me, it gets me in the, in the heart, I would have to say the vintage maple custom kit, you know, um, they, they kind of remind me of the old Gretsch shells. And, uh, you know, they, and what they, sizes do you use? Uh, right now I've got, um, 12 inch rack, uh, 14, 16 floors and a 24 inch kick drum. And I'm using my, one of my old seven inch birch shell snare drums. And what symbols? Uh, well, I'm a Zildjian guy, so I've got a 21-inch sweet ride, a couple of Ks, 17, 18 Ks, and I've got a 19-inch um, uh, rivets. It's an old A that we made in old rivets, and I use, I've always used 15-inch new beats. Oh, 15s. Always 15s. <laughs> and yeah. it's just straight new beats, top and bottom. Yeah, top and, top and bottom. Well, the bottom is a little heavier, you know, than the top. But Right, yeah, right, but that's beat. standard new beat. Yeah, that, that's it for me, man. I just, uh, I love them. And the, and you, seven, and, the, the K's yeah. cut because you're playing. Yeah. Even though, you know, it's live, it's mic'd, but it's yeah, still, I, I still find that the stage volume. The, the 17 and 18-inch K's actually sound pretty good, you know. They sound pretty good. And it, it depends on how you hit them, too. You know, you can you can hit them so that they're really subtle. You know, the decay is, is uh, there's no attack. It's just a lot of wash and decay. Or you can really smack them, you know, like an A-Custom. You know, I, I like an A-Customs, too. I'll slot those in once in a while, 17 and 18. And that's the trick to the case. Yeah, I think it's how you hit a K symbol is really, you know, thing uh, i'm not a big fan i've, I've tried k hi-hats and uh ride symbols but i love that 21 inch sweet ride that's a great symbol it's a great symbol the, it's got a nice big bell so you can really get a honk on there you know when you when you and, and enough definition and it cuts. yeah it's got definition when you need it but it's also got that ringo wash you know that wash <laughs> when you want and i love that i go for that all the time now live you know Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty hard to find. Usually they're either real pingy or real washy. Yeah, well, he used small symbols, right? He had, I think he had an 18 and a 19 or something, right? Isn't that what I, I'm not sure. Maybe a 20-inch, but I don't think he used 20s. I think he used small symbols. And he had a rivets for a while, too, which is interesting. Yeah. Everybody played rivets, you know. Everybody's, uh, how do they get that sound, you know? Like, how did Mitch Mitchell get that great wash, you know? And it was probably a rivet symbol, and so you have an A with rivets? Um, yeah, I have an A. It's a 19-inch, and we, uh, that's got rivets. I, I use different rivets, but that's the one I go to. I keep it over there on the – just over the 16, so when I'm lost down there, I got somewhere to go. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's really close. Love it. Yeah, because you don't want to get lost down there. Once, you, once you're over there and you, and you – you, forget it. The whole thing goes. So. <laughs> well, um Thank you. I want to thank you so much. I mean, I know we we could stay on. Uh, yeah. We're going to have you on. We'll have you on again. Let's do that. Uh, I would love to do it again, man. It's really fun. And you know how much I love talking to you, Bill. We, every time I see you, it's hours of we could just yap for hours. So, yeah, well, so much to fun. learn. So much to learn from your experience, oh, Mickey. Thanks, thank man. you for being David. It's great to see you again, drummer. man. It's been a long time, you know. It has been a while. Yeah. It has. It's yeah. great to see you as well. It's really and good. I'm glad. I'm glad things are good and and. Uh, 
thanks for just all the modern drummer stuff, man. You guys have been really good to me always. And uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much. My love to Susan. I love you. Yeah, thanks. I'll talk and to you. We'll talk soon. Thank right, you, guys. Mickey thanks Curry. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Okay, it's time for the shop talk section of the episode. This is Mike Dawson, managing editor at Modern Drummer. And this week, I'm chatting with my good friend, Steven Stetcher, over at Doc Sweeney Drums. They sent two snare drums for us to review. One is a 6 and 5 14 8-lug East Indian Rosewood solid tail drum. They're calling the Vishuda. Gorgeous drum. The other one is a 5 and 5 14 8-lug Tasmanian Blackwood with a solid show, and they're calling that the TB1. These are amazing drums, so we're going to drop in some demos of both of these drums later. But first, we're going to just chat with Steve about the company, the concept of how they make drums, and then a little bit of background on these two particular drums, and then we'll check them out. All right, let's get to it, Doc Sweeney Drums. Well, who is Doc Sweeney? Doc Sweeney is uh, my best friend. We grew up together, played drums together. He went off and became an educator, and when I built the company was trying to come up with some catchy name and i thought well doc sweet sounds pretty cool um so the the, uh named it after my best friend nice so how did you get into building drums uh when i retired from the corporate world i had been a drummer all throughout those years and when i uh, decided to retire early uh, I was looking for a hobby and just started, you know, uh, spending more time playing drums, uh, ch- checking out all kinds of different equipment. And just one thing led to another, decided, you know, let me do some research and figure out what it takes to make a drum. And that led to one, which led to more. Uh, one for Doc, as a matter of fact, <laughs> uh, before we named the company. And, uh, yeah, I got such a kick out of it. Uh, and such an interest in the tonal qualities of wood as well as is all the aspects that go into it, the bearing edges and the finish and the hardware. So, you know, one thing progressed to another, and then we designed our own hardware components, the box and the DS1 strainer, and those all get done here in Carlsbad, California. So uh, that's what it was. It was more of a you know, keep yourself busy, <laughs> uh, which turned from a hobby into this little business. <laughs> right. Now, why do you focus on solid and stave drums and not plywood? Well, when I started doing the research into uh, drums, you know, from the Leedies and the, uh, the early Ludwigs and, uh, and things like that, and uh, as well as Radio Kings, um, there was um, a, a strong emphasis on the solid wood and the performance of a solid wood uh, drum back in those days. And then that picked up pace when Graviato came back in and started doing it. And so as I was experimenting with different drums, um, I tried some of Dunnett stuff and some of Graviato stuff, as well as DW and a, a lot of ply companies. And I just found the sound to be richer and in, in many cases uh, more resonant um, in, in the solid wood drums. And, mm-hmm. and I find that both in stave and in, in steam vent. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they do perform differently. Um, I think probably more resonant possibly in some of the stave designs and a more focused 
uh, round kind of note, if, we, if you will, on the steam bed side. Hmm. Did you have you ever made a plywood drum at all, or did you go straight to solid? Yes, I have made a few, um, and um, you know they were fine. They just didn't seem to have the same uh, tonal qualities and hmm. and depth of sound that I was getting out of the solid wood. So uh, after you know a handful of attempts, I just started focusing solely on the solid wood. Now, how do you go about developing and then introducing a new line or style of drum? Well, that gets into the research, like looking into the Radio Kings of the old days and the um, Ludwigs of the 20s. Uh, My focus has been on trying to recreate some of those sounds. And so that led to the development of the classic collection, which is Mm -hmm. um, our take on the Ludwig super sensitive or the Ludwig drums of the 1920s, which were steam that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, and the legend uh, was uh, a take on the Radio King and using the exact bearing edges because we were able to have an exact Radio King and one of those Ludwigs. And with computer, we can we can actually replicate those almost perfectly. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, steam bend on both of those sides. And so that has been a very popular sound uh, profile, both those types of sounds, the the, the, the Ludwig sound and the, and the radio king sound with the really rounded bearing edges, 30 degree round over. So that has led to um, my interest in, we're, we're actually going to introduce the Legend Series kits and classic collection kits, uh, which will be coming out in the next three weeks. What we're doing on that, the very first one on the Legend Series will be European Beach. And it'll have the 30 degree round overs. Uh, it'll have a separate distinct lug design for it. And then the classic collection, the very first one coming out will be maple, and it'll be in that Pacific pearl finish that you've seen. Mm-hmm. It's, it's our take on the peacock pearl of the 1920s. And we'll have the long tube lugs that were accustomed, uh, built back in those days. So long brass tube lugs that are chrome plated and the 45 degree special round over bearing edges both t- on the take of the classic and in the, in the legend series. The other line that we've done uh, is the pure and the, the pure sound, uh, the pure shell, I should say, is our attempt at building a shell with the least amount of drilling or glue. So it doesn't have to have blue re-rings. They're actually milled. So we have the milling capability now to take a uh, five eighths of an inch thick board and mill the middle of the body out and leaving the bearing edges thicker, which gives it, obviously, rigidity, keeps it mm-hmm. in round, but allows us to eliminate any gluing other than the scarf joint. And we've made it an eight-lug design because it's eight like single point. So it has the least amount of drilling, the least amount of glue, and it is by far the most resonant shell we make. So it was, once again, it was experimenting sound and trying to eliminate weight and eliminate unnecessary glue to see mm-hmm. what we could come up with, and we're pleased with the results. Now, how did you settle on the the types of wood that you use for those drums, the Pure Series? Well, on the steam bent side, um, we in the steam bending world, there's certain species of domestic species that work and certain that don't. And so we've been focused on maple and walnut, which are clearly, um, uh, they're good to, for steam bending purposes. And we think good tonally. Uh, to kind of match what was going on back in those days. We've added uh, 
ash, uh, European beech, and oak, all are which are good at bending, and all have their own distinct voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just actually finished our first few European beech. Uh, I think they sound great. I'm really looking forward to the the full kit in the 30 degree roundover. Uh, you know, seeing now what kind of voice that produces for us. Mm-hmm. So, so most most of it, uh, most of it on the steam bend side has to do with the the species ability to take the pressure of bending, mm, and then on, on the stave side it's limitless. And so yeah. on this, and we also do, as you know, we we're now uh, on the exotic side. We're doing East Indian rosewood, which mm-hmm. we think is an exceptional tonal wood, and Tasmanian blackwood from Australia, mm-hmm. which is an acacia, and it it is bends well. So those will continue to do on the exotic side for snares. Uh, and on the stave side, we've looked at all kinds of different rosewoods and very dense woods to give us some really crisp uh, sound. As a matter of fact, I just finished one today uh, made out of Paul Rosa, which is a very dense hardwood from Africa. I'll send you a pic later, but exceptionally bright, very sensitive, um, very much in line with the density of a rosewood. So you kind of give it a sense of what kind of sound it produce. But we're always looking at, on the, on the stave side, uh, at the tonal woods that have been used in musical instruments, whether they're mandolins. We just finished a Spanish cedar um, snare drum, mm-hmm. uh, which is very, uh, uh, Spanish cedar is used in building those, uh, some of the higher end ones. And so we like looking at and experimenting with woods that, that in other musical applications seem to perform well tonally mm. and so with very little limitations on on uh, what you can do with it because basically you're cutting 20 staves for a snare drum and they're each two and three eighths inch thick and so you can pretty much get it out of almost any wood and eliminate knots and all the other imperfections mm. was there any wood that you thought was going to sound great that just doesn't <laughs> um Trying to think of some some of the stinkers. Um, <laughs> you know, I can't think of anything that was really just terrible. Um, you know, I've, I've built out of so many different woods. Um, each none of them had a really bad sound. Some of them had a, um, for example, popular. It had a much deeper, lower register than than you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of the um, ashes and others. Uh, in some people's, uh, for, for their sound profile, maybe a little too aggressive, too harsh. Mm-hmm. But I haven't found any that I just went, oh my God, I got to burn this is fancy, you know, <laughs> firewood. So I haven't done that. What about the flip side? Any that really surprised you? Yeah, the some of that are that really surprised me, and it, and it was difficult to, to accomplish was East Indian rosewood. Mm-hmm. I just think it has such a beautiful sound. Uh, Really, really like the, the Tasmanian blackwood. Mm-hmm. What I find in the domestic side, we, we do myrtle, which I uh, think very few companies have ever used. It's a domestic from uh, Northwest. Uh, great tonal wood. It's used in a lot of high-end acoustic guitars. I really found that to be quite excellent. And I'm really um, a fan of walnut. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. like the warmth and the roundness. And it's just it's such a warm, beautiful sound to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the last one that um, really does sound uh, great, and I didn't, I wasn't sure it was going to make a good drum, 
was the Spanish cedar because it's so lightweight and, and it has very little density, but mm-hmm. it has such a warm, deep sound to it. And the shell's a half an inch thick. Mm-hmm. So that was one that it was an experiment to see, you know, because people have asked me about cedar drums and I just thought, well, I put plugs on it. I'm not sure it's going to stay together, you right. know, <laughs> but uh, at half an inch thick, it does. And it sounds really good. The drum, the shell itself weighs like as much of a new as a newspaper. It's very lightweight. <laughs> so the only, only thing of, of mass on it are the, the hoops and the, and the lugs. That's good to know. Good for the gigging drummer, for sure. Um, yeah. Before we dive into the, the two new drums, can you describe the difference, what you hear sonically between the classic and the legend? Like, what are the sound profiles that you would describe? Yeah, um, I think you hear a much fatter, deeper sound with less sustain in the legend. I mean, excuse me, yeah, in the legend. Okay. And that's because of the rounded nature of the heavily, heavily rounded 30-degree bearing edge, mm. um, which were used in the 30s and 40s. So you have less sustain, um, a lot of depth to the sound, and uh, and I think you get a much brighter sound, uh, a little bit more attack, um, and a little more sensitivity on the classic because mm-hmm. the 45, it's a 45 round of it, but once again, it's a much sharper edge. So you're going to get more sustained, more ringing, you know, mm-hmm. much more open tone. So one is kind of a closed tone, warm, um, very uh, Gene Krupa kind of sound, you mm-hmm. know, uh, on the legend side. And the other is a much more bright articulate uh, and, and a lot more overtones and overringing. Okay. Uh, which would be, you know, in, a, in any kind of sharp bearing edge. All right. So um, let's talk about the two drums that you sent for me to check out recently. This sure. is the East Indian Rosewood, which is a six and a half by 14. And then a Tasmanian Blackwood, which is a five and a half by 14. Uh, right. everything, everything about the shell is otherwise similar, right? 45 degree with round over edge, eight lugs. Um and I thought they played very well together. I thought they were, I would, if you would have asked me to guess what the woods were, I would have thought they were the same. Um, I don't know if that, if you have the similar um, thoughts about you, the sound you, you profile. Kind of, you got stuck there for a minute. I, okay. You were frozen. So, did you repeat that question? Yeah. So the sound profile of these two drums, I heard them playing very well together, almost to the point where I would have guessed they were the same species. I wouldn't have guessed they were two different species. Uh, was that the intention to have these similar exotic woods or do or you hear these things very differently? Uh, I hear them differently. Um, and I think it would probably come down to uh, having them, you know, the same depth and, and, mm-hmm. and everything like that. Um, because the, the acacia is significantly less dense than the rosewood mm. significantly. And so uh, if you were doing, you know, the same lugs on it and the same bearing edges and the same um, depth, uh, I think you would definitely hear a difference because mm-hmm. of the, the softer nature of the uh, blackwood will make it warmer, a little deeper, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the density of East Indian rosewood is considerably more dense uh, than the blackwood. And you're going to get, I think, um, higher, uh, more volume out of highs and mids Mm-hmm. with some good sensitive lows where the, the blackwood is going to tend to be more low and mid and very little on the high. 
because okay. once again of the density of the wood. Yeah. So maybe your yeah, what you said was the the depth is what might bounce them out to my ear. Like the right. deeper the deeper rosewood sounds a little bit bigger, and then the shallower blackwood sounds a little bit brighter than maybe they would be <laughs> compared side by yeah. side. Yeah, I, I definitely think that is the case. Yeah, and I found on, that was that was the very first one we built, and we've uh, we've got four more in production uh, of different sizes mm. uh, on the blackwood side. Uh, we're really we're really happy with with um, the sound that came out of both of those species. Yeah, I'm still yet to make a decision on on which one I like better. They both kind of you guys every drum of yours that I that I play seems to be perfect balance of everything in certain ways like i get the open brightness of a metal shell but also the warmth and depth of a wood shell and honestly these two drums i thought were like the finest representations of that that you've put out there so far it was yeah like i would agree well with you balanced. i think i think depending on the heads you use and 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 the, you know uh, how tight you 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 tune the drum up or down mm-hmm. Um, you're going to get a really nice kind of metallic feel out of the rosewood. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it almost has a, a has a, a little bit of a metallic sound to it because it's so dense. Mm-hmm. But then it doesn't, you know. Then the bottom end still has, in my opinion, has the woody sound mm-hmm. to it. Yep. So you get you get that kind of tingy, bingy, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of the metallic start and then a, a wood finish. I think is the way I kind of describe it. Yeah, they're beautiful. Uh, so you kind of already answered my last question. Like, what's next? You're doing pure, se- not pure series kit, classic series kits, legend correct, series correct. kits. Absolutely. <laughs> is there going to be a pure series kit down the road? <laughs> um, that that is probably not something we're we're not exploring right now. Okay. It's because the um, the technique to use to manufacture it um, doesn't lend itself to going to smaller than 14 inches. Oh, okay. We can do 13, but if, if you wanted to do a 12, 14, 22, mm-hmm. that process would be very difficult um, mm-hmm. on the pure size. So we're staying with 13 and 14 at, at this point. Although, you know, when we get bored, we'll experiment and you may end <laughs> up seeing a bass drum, you know? Awesome. Well, I can't wait to check out the kits when they're ready, but... In the meantime, in this episode, we are highlighting the, how do you pronounce it? Vishuda? Yeah. East, East Indian Rosewood. Vishuda. And the right. TB1, which is Tasmanian Blackwood Solid Shell Snare. Um, we're going to drop an audio here later in the episode, but that's all the questions I had for you today. Appreciate it. Excellent. All right, let's get to the demo. So the first one is the 5.5 by 14 8 lug Tasmanian Blackwood Solid Shell Drum. They're calling the TB1. Tasmanian Blackwood is a pretty hard timber. It's 1160 on the Jenker rating. This has 45-degree round bearing edges, chrome-plated solid brass tube lugs, the proprietary Doc Sweeney uh, throw-off, which I call the DS1. This has an Evans UV1 batter, Evans 300 snare side, and I'm going to take it through the full tuning range. So check it out. Here is the TB1 by Doc Sweeney.
All right, and we're going to finish up with the Vishuddha drum. This is a 6 net by 14 8 lug East Indian Rosewood solid shelled snare. This has a throat chakra etched into the shell that's very cool looking. This is a very hard shell. It is 2440 on the Janka hardness rating. It has 45 degree round bearing edges, aluminum arch lugs, the DS1 strainer. This one came with a Remo Diplomat fiber skin batter and an Ambassador Hazy. Which was a great combo. I feel it just rounded out the the dense hardwood a little bit, made it sound very very musical and rich. So yeah, these are two gorgeous gorgeous drums. Check out the Vishuda. Check out the TB1. Go to their website, Doc Swinney Drums. Check out more of what they got. This is some of the finest uh, craftsmanship you'll find. So here we go. This is the Vishuda. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Thank you, everybody, for watching this week's Modern Drummer Podcast. Stay tuned for next week's episode exclusively on Podcast One. Until then, stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening and watching. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.